Small Farm Nation is sponsored by Farmers Web, software for your farm. Farmers Web helps farms inform buyers of available product, handle orders, simplify customer interactions, and reduce the administrative load. So check them out at farmersweb.com. As sustainable livestock farmers, we want to honor the whole animal. But what about when it comes to using the animal's hide? Hey, it's Tim Young of SmallFarmNation.com. Today I'm speaking with Sarah Scully, who founded Vermont Natural Sheepskins as a business that organically preserves sheepskins for her farm and others. Joining me today is Sarah Scully, founder of Vermont Natural Sheepskins. Now, Sarah was born in Vermont, but grew up in the southeastern United States just like me. Now, after college, she and her husband, Rick, relocated to a rural setting in Vermont for its cold climate and established farming communities. She has worked in audio production, and she was also a professional librarian before being inspired to start the first commercial organic tannery in America. And I can't wait to hear more about that. We're going to dive all into it. So, Sarah, welcome to Small Farm Nation. Thank you so much, Tim. Thanks for having me. So how did you actually get into sheep? What was your first experience raising sheep for yourself? Well, I have to go back a little further than that. So I started off as a knitter um, and I didn't, uh, a lot of people in the fiber arts community began when they were children. I did not, I came to it as an adult, but I immediately found it was like, it was sort of the thing that I had been looking for, you know, that, that interest that you just can't put down. Um, and from there, we had already moved to Vermont, and we had sort of thought about getting animals. And then, of course, with the knitting and wool, sheep was the logical um, choice for us. We have about 10 acres here, so it's a very small sort of homestead. Um, and we're on a steep slope. We have poor soil. So in terms of what kind of animals to get, you know, dairy cows wouldn't have worked. Horses aren't going to work here, um, but sheep do really well. Now, where did you move to Vermont from? Um, outside of Washington, D.C. We were, we were living in a suburb of D.C., Silver Spring, and we did look around kind of the suburbs of Maryland and that, but that whole area um, was and, and continued to get more and more developed and built up. A lot of the farmland has now turned into housing developments and um, office parks. So I'm glad we made that choice. Um, we moved yeah, no here kidding, right? It's, it's, it's much better, much much better being in the country than being near DC, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's so much more relaxing. I mean, the thing I miss about being in DC, of course, is all the cultural things and um, you know all the all the variety and diversity that you get um, from living in a place with with more people. But um, the peace and quiet up here is very nice. I can see the stars at night. All those good things. Yeah, I know what you mean about the uh, having access to the culture and, you know, and we have a pretty young daughter. She's uh, six years old. So, you know, when you live out in the middle of nowhere, which is where we live, I mean, you're not close to anything. They don't get that. But we learned that we would rather travel to D.C., which we do every now and then, or travel to other cities and exposure to those cultural aspects in the museums and, and the arts and whatnot, and then go back to the country rather than live in the city. Right, exactly. Yeah, you can, you can always way. visit the city. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so um, you, you mentioned that one of the things that you were looking for was a cold climate. Why was that important to you? Oh, I just like the cold. You know, I, I grew up in Columbia, South Carolina. My parents moved there um, from Vermont when I was a child. And um, I, I, 
being roasted about eight months out of the year, um, which is how I felt. You're, you almost feel like you're being boiled alive. It's so hot and swampy. Um, and I just, you know, my, my husband and I were looking at a map of the United States. We were trying to figure out where we wanted to live and we just started eliminating places, you know, and that was the first one to go for me. I was like, nope, no more swamps, no more bugs. <laughs> Um, yeah, well, our, our, we we farmed uh, we farmed about an hour and a half away from Columbia in uh, Elbert County, Georgia, which is right on oh. the Georgia South Carolina line. Okay, and, you know we we raised about a hundred Katahdin sheep there, in addition to all kinds of other species of livestock. And yeah, you're right. I mean, it's it's you know it's very it's challenging from a farming point of view. It's hot. I mean, the fire ants are incredible. So there's a lot yes. of better places in the country than that. Poisonous snakes, poison ivy. I mean, I don't, please, your listeners, you know, that live in the South, there's many beautiful things about it, too. And there's so many advantages, you know, you can farm all year round and I can't. So, you know, there's wonderful things about it, too. But just from our point point of view, um, I would rather shovel snow and <laughs> and do that than be hot all year. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I totally get it. So you got a steep hillside, 10 acres or so in Vermont. Uh, mm-hmm. it wasn't, it wasn't good for dairy cattle. So, so what you decided to get some sheep? Decided to get some sheep. It was that or a tractor to sort of just maintain, you know, keep, keep the brush down. And we cleared about three acres when we bought our property. It was all pine forest, um, not old growth, just, um, Vermont had been clear cut, you know, a century ago. And so this was like scrubby forest, not not valuable timber property or anything like that. We wanted to get some sunlight on our driveway. We wanted to get some sunlight so we could have a small vegetable garden. Um, and then you have to keep the land open or it will regrow really quickly. And, you know, do you want to spend money on a tractor and a barn to put your tractor in and gas for your tractor and maintenance on your tractor? Or do you want to spend money on a small shed and some fencing and some animals and and you know it's nice to look out and see the sheep um grazing and so that's what we did yeah you know it's a the battle you're talking about is one that i you know face all the time when you have a rural property um you know whether it's set up as a homestead or whatever you know you've got to maintain it and it's one thing if it's all woods but if you've got any open land at all a few acres or whatever you're either going to be mowing and weed whacking all the time or, you know, you got to put animals out there and let them do the work for you. And that's what I do. And it sounds like that's what you did as well. Yep. Yep, exactly. And we started out with a, um, a heritage breed of sheep, a rare breed um, called Navajo Churro. And as the name suggests, um, the Navajo Dine people um, were um, the folks that really um, latched on. They didn't historically have sheep. There were no sheep in North America. But when um, uh, colonials came over, the Spanish came over, they brought sheep with them. And the Dine people quickly latched onto that as a great resource. You know, you get your wool, you get your pelts, you get your meat, you get, um, I think they would do like yogurt and things with the, with the milk. And it became a central part of their economy. And, um, and then the federal government, of course, through um, relocation um, and you know, those, those terrible programs, um, that happened in the 18 uh, or 19th and 20th centuries, um, the, the breed of sheep was almost lost because of that. And so we were interested, there were some local people raising those, um, out here. It's mostly a breed that you find in the Southwest. Um, but, but we had a few breeders here and, you know, it's a compelling story. We wanted to do what we could to, to keep the breed going. And, um, and they're a great sheep to raise, I would say for a beginner, because, they're very self-sufficient. They're easy, easy lammers. Um, 
they're smart. They can kind of take care of themselves. They have a lot of that wild sheep instinct. And so you don't have to do a lot with them. You don't have to supplement their diet. They can live off of scrubby land and, and brush. Um, and they're pretty easy to take care of. So we started with those. So, so, how, so how did you actually go from raising a few of those to having a, your first experience with tanning? So I wanted to, you know, honor the whole animal when we had our first lambs that we were culling after our first breeding season. And I sent those lamb skins off to a commercial tannery and they came back. They looked beautiful, but they were full of chemical residue and I could smell them. I'm very allergic to a lot of uh, things myself. I'm very sensitive. And when I touched them, I broke out in hives um, from the chemical residue and so I was just thinking, well, how am I going to sell this if I can't even be around it? And do I even want to sell this and sort of inflict it on somebody else? Um, and isn't there a better way? And that's what inspired me to do um, more research. There are home tanning methods that you can do, and I sort of briefly considered those, but they take a huge amount of physical labor and a lot of time, many hours per skin. Um, and as I want to do, I was thinking, well, if you scaled it up, you wouldn't have to spend that much labor per skin. <laughs> so I found this woman in England. Her name is Nikki Port, and she had founded Organic Sheepskins, um, was the name of her business. And she had a link on her site that said, you know, is this a business for you? And that's, that's what planted the seed, was reading that and thinking about that. And then, of course, it took a few years of research and planning to actually open the tannery. I trained with her went over to England on a couple of visits and trained with her and learned her veg tanning method, um, which is really meant for a small cottage industry size um, of a setup. So it's so not before, really. Before, so before yeah, we get into that piece, what is actually yeah. the problem with a uh, conventional tanning? Cause I don't, I think a lot of people aren't really aware of what's being used to produce these products when they buy them. So when you talk about some industrial chemicals or whatnot, what's, what are they typically using in that process? There's a few different processes. Um, the main one and kind of the industrial standard, which don't get me wrong, it makes a beautiful product, um, is chrome tanning. And so that's a heavy metal. And, um, you know, I think people may be aware of the problems of using heavy metals in production. They get into the environment around the facility. They end up in the, the end product. Um, and that's chromium. Um, and the other phase of that, process is that they use dry cleaning fluid, um, perchloroethylene, to get the grease out of the skin at the last stage. And that stuff is highly toxic. It is known to cause cancer. Um, and it's just not something I would want to be exposing myself to. And I think a lot of people might be sensitive to it. Um, so it's really the dry cleaning fluid that's the problem with that method. There's another, um, a couple of small tanners that use a slightly different method that doesn't use the chrome, but they do use formaldehyde, unfortunately. And again, that is a known toxin that is cancer causing and et cetera. Um, and anything that you use to tan is going to end up in the end product. Every, every tanned skin is going to have the residue of whatever you use to tan it with. So you have, you know, you have to be conscious of that. Um, and I don't so know if you have much, I don't, I don't know if you use much water in the tanning process, but whatever you use is going to end up in the water system too. It is. The, the chrome tanneries are heavily regulated um, and they have to reuse their, um, they have to recapture their water and pull that 
residue out and reuse it. Um, and they do a good job of that. Um, I don't know how closely some of these other tanneries that are sort of doing, they're doing more of a taxidermy kind of a process, and I don't know how heavily um, regulated those are. So now, were you a librarian at the time? Because you said that when you went to Nikki's side at uh, Organic Sheepskins, that it said, is this a business for you? Mm -hmm. So what, why, why did that message even resonate with you? Was something missing in your career that you were looking for? Yeah, you know, um, I think like a lot of us, we we might have tried the office life. Um, and I really enjoyed a lot of aspects of my job. But just being inside, being in front of a computer all day, you know, that was really starting to stress me out and wear me down. And I decided I really wanted to be, I still work inside primarily, but, you know, it's physical labor. Um, and I think, I think I had always had an entrepreneur mindset. I just hadn't had the confidence or an idea to try that I thought would work, where I thought that there was an open enough market that I could get in on it. Um, you know, we tried selling our farm products and things, and I, I kind of wish I'd stumbled on you at the time when we started, because um, I made a lot of those, you know, those mistakes about not knowing my market and not knowing how to find my customers and just some of that basic um, business acumen that you need to have as a, as a small farmer. Um, but tanning, you know, nobody else was doing it. And I thought, well, here's an open field. You know, if I, if I can manage to get it going, I know I'm going to have customers. And I had been, you know, in those years of starting to have keep livestock and thinking about the tannery, I'd been talking to, you know, shep other shepherds through our sheep and goat association and, you know, festivals and events I would attend. And, was just hearing a lot of grumbling about, yeah, isn't there something, isn't there a better option or a, or a more environmentally friendly option? This was an issue that frustrated the heck out of us for years because we, we raised the, you know, a herd of Murray Gray cattle. Like I said, we raised a hundred Katahdin sheep at a time and we did a lot mm -hmm. of processing and we always, you know, we very much valued celebrating and honoring the entire animal of course, that means on, you know, the meat and the bones and the organs and all those things. But we never could find a good resource to do anything with the hides. Or if we did, we had to ship it to like Pennsylvania or Ohio, someplace far away and go through a conventional process. And it was just really frustrating. I mean, did you do any market research with other farmers to find out before you started your business if they had the same frustration? I did. Yes. Um, and I did it very um, kind of low tech. I made a Google survey <laughs> form and I sent it around to a bunch of sheep and goat associations. And I said, you know, would you please send this to your members? I'm collecting information. I want opinions. And I asked them all kinds of questions. You know, what do you do now? Have you ever tanned your stuff? Have you been happy with it? How much have you paid? How much would you be willing to pay? You know, do you value organic? Do your customers value organic? How much of a premium do you think you could charge for that if it was available? How many hides per year do you think you would have? You know, and that was a huge resource, and and um, it it helped me clarify my thinking, and of course helped me get funding, um, and justify the the whole business model to the bank. So, absolutely. So talk about talk, so talk about that for a second. What did the what did the bank have to fund for you? I mean, uh, it sounds mm -hmm. like you needed uh, capital or something. Yeah, because um, this process, like I said, it's not it's not a fully labor intensified uh, process. It is um, I use machines, I use equipment to help me, and so all of that equipment, um, it's either industrial scale like washing machines, um, like you'd find in a hotel laundry, um, which are very expensive, 
or um, custom built machines, um, what are called paddles. They're the big tanks that the skins soak in while they're tanning and there's a, a paddle, um, kind of like you would imagine on the back of a steamboat or something. And that uh, agitates the water slowly so that the, the tan is even and the tannin is, um, uh, what do I wanna say, distributed in the, in the liquor. Um, and all of that stuff costs, you know, thousands of dollars. So we did invest some of our own money, but we didn't want to take 100% of the risk on ourselves. So we did look for funding. Um, fortunately, there is a local, um, they're called the Randolph Area Development Corporation, and they help small businesses and they help find, um, they, they helped put me in touch with my landlord in the facility that I'm renting. Um, and they also did provide us with a loan. So they're that kind of, uh, connecting organization for small business and entrepreneurs. And that was really valuable too. Hey, Small Farm Nation. Ever wonder why some farms have a wait list of loyal customers while you work an off-farm job and struggle just to stay afloat? Well, the secret to having a thriving farm business isn't a secret at all. It's called marketing. Successful farms know that marketing is the first priority because without customers willing to pay the prices you require, your farm can't survive. But here's some exciting news if you struggle with farm marketing. Now you can become a farm marketing ninja just by joining smallfarmnationacademy.com. Small Farm Nation Academy is jam-packed with farm marketing video lessons, downloadable resources, mastermind calls with successful farmers, and a rich community forum. If you're struggling with your farm's website, you can even get a modern farm press website for your farm included for free if you'd like. And get this. If you'd like personal guidance specific to your farm business, you're in luck because smallfarmnationacademy.com members get one-to-one -one coaching from Tim Young, free, anytime. It's like having Tim as your on-call farm marketing mentor. By applying what you'll learn in Small Farm Nation Academy, you'll become the preferred brand in your market. So instead of struggling to find customers, customers will seek you out. Isn't it time that you made marketing the priority of your farm business? So head over to smallfarmnationacademy.com right now and get growing. So let's let's dive into the um, the process actually for tanning because I find this fascinating. And as somebody who uh, was an artist and cheesemaker, I often got asked the question, you know, well, how do you make cheese? And while there's there's different make procedure for different types of cheese, of course, there's basically you know a common six or eight steps that you go through for all cheeses. So. Mm -hmm. With the tanning process, I mean, the first step, of course, is, you know, you, you got to get hide, you got to get skin. So where do you source yours from? Right. So about 80% of our business is tanning for other people. Um, so my customers are my source and then they get their skins back. Um, the other uh, percentage I get from local butchers that I have developed a relationship or occasionally um, some of my customers, I'll tan some for them and then they'll trade me some if they have a big batch. Um, so they're all local, all sourced from New England. And um, the first step in my process is actually washing the skin, laundering it. Um, essentially, I use a phosphate-free, um, eco-friendly detergent. And you have to get out all the dirt, manure, blood, salt, um, all that stuff. Uh, the, the skins have arrived salted, salt-cured from my customers so that they are stable for a number of months before I can um, get to them. And then from there, they, um, they soak in what's called pickle, which re help further uh, rehydrate the skin. 
then I flush them. I take all the sinew and extra fat off of the skin side. Um, and then from there they go into tannin. And I use a tree bark tannin. Um, it's from a tree called the mimosa tree. And um, they soak in there for anywhere from a week to two weeks, typically for lambs, uh, ram skins, because they can um, be very thick. This is the adult male sheep. Um, those skins can take up to two months sometimes um, for the tannin. Does the tree bark, does the tree bark process the tannin uh, cr uh, create the same type of enzymatic reaction that brain tanning does or, or what does it do? No, it does not. Um, so you're, you're talking about a lipid type of tan. Um, the, the active ingredient, if you will, in the brain is the cholesterol. And I am not an expert on brain tanning, but here's what I know about it. The cholesterol replaces some of the volatile compounds in the skin and prevents it from going bad. Um, it's kind of, it's more of a preservative, if you will, than a full tan. And then what you have to do to really, um, complete that tanning process is you have to smoke the skin and it's the smoke um, from tree bark that adds an extra layer of preservative protection, waterproofing, et cetera. So that, so brain tanning is sort of a two-step process um, with the, the tree bark tan, or as it's called in the industry, you might hear veg tan or vegetable tan. That's a tree bark tan. And what that does is the, the tannin, the um, compound, it's the same one that you find in wine, penetrates into the skin and changes the chemical composition of the skin and replaces, again, a lot of those um, volatile compounds in the skin to, to prevent it from breaking down. So what you end up with in a veg tan is the, the finished product is part sheep, part tree, um, because it's bonded together. Okay, got it. So you, so now you're in the process where you're at the tanning stage and you're doing bark tanning. Well, um, what, how long, how far are we into the process now time-wise to get to this point? Probably about two weeks. And then um, from there, uh, let's see, probably about another week to finish. So from tanning and then um, they're pulled out, they're rinsed, the excess tannin is washed away. Um, I stake them out on boards and dry them. You want to dry the leather and then buffing to soften the hide and trimming and then combing the wool um, to get rid of any loose fibers, um, you know, hay chaff, anything that might be in the, in the wool side. You said about 80% of your customers are the farm. So does that mean that you're producing, I know you're, they're, they're probably not white labeling or something like that, but are you giving them the product back and then they're selling it to their customers? Exactly. Um, so uh, I, I actually stamp them with my tannery name just so that people understand that it's come from an organic source. Um, you can also tell my product because the, the final leather is sort of a pinkish beige color from the tree bark and if you see if you see sheepskins out there on the market and they're gray or white or yellow, they've used some other process. Um, and yeah, they're selling it just under their farm name. Um, and they're selling at farmers markets or they're selling online. Some of them. Um, I don't know if any of them are doing wholesale. Perhaps working with um, you know home decor type of uh, retailers. 
So how, how, do, how do customers actually use the hides? Are these rugs or these blankets or what are they? Um, it sort of depends on the breed and the style. Um, but yes, sheepskin rugs, blankets, baby rugs, um, either play mats or sleeping rugs for, for children. Um, you can roll them up and t- put them in bed and use them as additional support, you know, under your knees or you got a bad back. Um, I like to sit on mine in the wintertime. I just drape it over the couch and sit on it. Um, my, my line at festivals is it turns any antique uncomfortable chair into a comfortable chair. Um, <laughs> you can also put them in your car and use them as a, a seat cover that way. Um, and then I do have people who ask me, you know, oh, can you make me hats and gloves and mittens and things? Um, and the answer to that is no, I'm, I'm not a sewer um, or a leather worker. Um, and, and my process does not yield what's called shearling, which is a specific term for a textile grade of sheepskin. So that leather has been ten- mechanically tenderized. Um, sometimes it's been split, like you'll hear of split leather. And then um, the, the wool's usually been shorn down to a very specific length. So that's what shearling is. And you'll see that in, you know, coats and boots and, and all of that. I do not have all the equipment to make shearling. So I make sheepskins. I have had some people do, you know, crafts and things with the, the ones that they buy from me. They cut them up and make stuff out of them. Okay, got it. I think a lot of the ones that you buy, at least that are industrially produced, aren't machine washables. Are, are yours machine washable or do they have to be hand washed? Um, they can be machine washable, again, depending on the length of fiber. Usually I, I, uh, a home machine, um, especially these days with, um, you know, Energy Star machines, they're not using very much water. And the danger with that is that you are using just a small amount of water and a lot of agitation, and that can lead to felting. So I typically recommend that people just spot clean these. Um, it's just like taking care of any kind of other kind of leather object, whether it's upholstery on your sofa or a, a handbag or shoes. You wouldn't normally throw those in the washing machine frequently, um, but you might spot clean them if you, you know, spilled wine on them or something like that. Um, but yes, you could wash these in a bathtub or in a machine on the gentle cycle if, if it just got really dirty. Um, you know, um, I think a lot of us that have that have been gone from the cubicle life to um, some type of farming enterprise are just were initially struck by how little we were aware of where things come from, particularly food. You know, where things come from, and then we're struck by how unaware our customers are of that. But mm-hmm. I'm wondering if you're finding the same thing for not food, for example, for sheepskins or for rugs or for hides. I mean, are, are you seeing the same? issue of a lack of awareness and um, a hunger, if you will, for wanting something that's locally sourced? Um, Absolutely. And, you know, people do give me those same questions we've just been over about, okay, well, what's the difference between your process and this other process? Um, Because I I do charge uh, more than most commercial tanneries um, because I have to, my, my labor is more time and physically intensive. Right. Um, So people are curious about those differences. Um, I, there's a, there's no cert, organic certification program for leather, so I am not organically certified in any way, um, but I do call my process organic because it is, you know, it's little low organic. But of course, they want to ask about that question, and that's fine. Um, and a lot of people have never done, they've never sent their sheepskins off to a tannery be- be- before um, because they are afraid of those chemicals. And so they'll come to me as a first timer and they need to know how to handle the skins after slaughter, 
um, how to get them fully salt cured so that the wool doesn't fall out, um, how to get them to me, et cetera. So yeah, there's a lot of customer education is a huge part of what I do every day. So where can this business go for you? I mean, uh, you were talking about sheep. Well, I think you also do uh, goat and alpaca too. Um, but um, what about cows, bison, or any other species? Um, no, and that's another question I get a lot. Um, a lot. I wish somebody would do this kind of um, hair on tanning offer for uh, folks who raise dairy cow and cattle. Um, so I mentioned that a lamb takes two to three weeks. A cow hide would take over a year with this process. And of course, when they're large and they're heavy, I manipulate all of my skins by hand. I, I physically have to lift them in and out of the vats and move them around. Um, and they're very heavy when they're wet. A cow hide weighs hundreds of pounds when it's wet, right? So now you have to go to a mechanized way to move the hides around and do all that. There is one place I wanted to mention. They're called J and F J Baker. Um, and perhaps we can link to them in the show notes. If people are curious, they're over in England as well. And they're one of the few fully veg tan um, production houses for cattle hides uh, in the world. Um, and they're, you know, they've been around hundreds of years and they've managed to hold on. But yeah, it's a fascinating process. So no, wow. it would take millions I mean, I, of dollars of investment to do that. And, and that's not a project I'm interested in taking on. But, you know, maybe maybe somebody's interested in doing it. There's, there would be a market for it, for sure. Um, wow, but I mean, how, how, how informative, because I didn't, I didn't realize that. I mean, a year to do that with your process, and you're right, you would need a huge warehouse space because you've got to be able to store all those, you know, while, as they're coming to market. It's, it'd be a big, big, big undertaking. Right. And just manipulating, manipulating those hides, you have to have huge machines and, you know, overhead um, cranes to lift them and move them into each vat of the process and do all those steps. So, um, yeah, it's a, it would be a massive undertaking. Uh, so. so what are the what are the goals that you have with your business from here going forward? You know, just just keep it sustainable. Um, keep being able to pay myself a living wage. Um, it would be nice to get some help at some point. I'm still working on paying down uh, debt that we took on to start this. So as soon as I get some of those loans paid off, um, I'm hoping to hire some part-time help. Um, people, I do often get requests to um, you know, have internships or study with me, and I'd love to be able to offer that. Unfortunately, because of the dangerous nature of my work, um, I, I can't afford to take insurance out for, for other people. So. Um, you know, but that's something to think about in future is, is hiring somebody part-time to help me. And, you know, maybe looking at grant opportunities or things to buy some of that shear, shearling equipment. That's another massive investment, probably another, you know, $100,000 or something to get the equipment needed to do that process. But that would be, I think, an area of growth because I, I think the textile market is also very hungry for more organics. You see organic cotton coming in um, pretty well. You see organic yarn and wool for people who, you know, sew things or knit or whatever. Um, I think organic shearling would be a great offering to be able to provide. You, you, mentioned, you mentioned the elements of danger in your business. What are the dangerous components of doing what you do? Oh, just, you know, some of the machines uh, have sharp surfaces or um, things. I use a flushing wheel, like a taxidermist wheel. Um, so it's a power blade. Um, 
you have to be, you know, you have to be cautious around that. My combing uh, iron is, um, it looks like a large laundry mangler, but it spins automatically at high speed. Um, and I do use acids in the process. Again, everything is um, food grade uh, that I use in the process, but, you know, concentrated acid, obviously you could get, burn yourself badly with that. So it's, it's just like any other um, kind of physical production process. You have to be aware of, of your machines and, and safety protocols. And that's all some stuff that I learned and could teach somebody, but exposing them to that without proper insurance would be um, nonsensical. <laughs> yeah, of course. Now, you so, know, you got into this because you went over, you, you saw the opportunity on, on Nikki Port's website. Hey, is this for you? Is, mm -hmm. is, if you, if you, and it sounds like you would really like to see this grow and take hold uh, as a methodology and as a business throughout the country. Um, so your opportunities are for you to either expand or is there an opportunity for you to teach other people um, how to start their own businesses? You know, I don't have license from her to teach her method, um, so they would have to work that out with her, but I would love to see some more small tanneries. I only tan about 600 to 650 hides a year, which may sound like a lot if, if you're somebody who's tanned hides at home before and maybe you've done one or two, you know how labor intensive that is. But that 650 is a drop in the bucket. That's one day of production of a larger, you know, a, a traditional chrome tannery. And so to get access to this process, and I have, I have people from Washington State, I have people from Texas, California, um, sending me their hides, and I would love to see some more tanneries on a small scale out in those areas serving those markets, because I think there is room for, you know, five or six of what I'm doing um, across the country. Hmm. You know, now that you've taken several years now and you've made your transition out of what, what, I, what I love to affectionately call the rat race to this more mm -hmm. rural way of life, um, what are the larger, uh, more macro farming or food-related issues that you find that you really care about and want to see change? Um, well, I've always, you know, I was a... a a child of a hippie. And so we always ate well at home. We always had fresh produce. Um, we always went to the farmer's market, but I'm very happy to see that trend growing even more organic food in general, um, buying directly from farmers, local farmers. We're very lucky that here in Vermont, there's a huge local food um, economy, well-established. I can, I can go to a farmer's market and buy everything that I need for my or my pantry, maybe aside from some grains, although there, there are even people here growing wheat and things like that. Um, but, you know, I can get meat, eggs, uh, maple syrup for sweetening, any kind of vegetable, all different kinds of fruits, which you would think, you know, you can't grow a lot of fruit up here, but actually there's, there's quite a few varieties that you can grow. Um, so just continuing to support and grow those areas and encouraging more and more people also to, to have their own backyard garden. Um, mm. I imagine some of your listeners have gotten into farming because they wanted to grow their own food and then they thought, oh, I can scale this up and grow for other people too. And I think that's great. I think that that's, um, I think it's both great and problematic. I think 95% of, of us get into farming because we want to have that lifestyle and we want to produce something for ourselves. And I think that is fantastic. I wish everybody would do that. The problematic side is, 
to be successful as a business, normally you start the other way and you go, hey, what's a business opportunity that I can feel passionate about and go succeed at? And then I want to go do that. And so the business side of farming, unfortunately, oftentimes is an afterthought. Right. Yep. And like I said, I had that same struggle too until I kind of found a way to back into a farming service that wasn't farming (laughs) because I realized that farming wasn't quite where my head was, you know? Yeah. Well, you're rocking and rolling now. So you mentioned that uh, 80% come from farmers. That means 20% come from butchers for the butcher products. Are those, um, is that tanning that you're turning into products that you sell online? Right. Yes. We have an online store um, and, uh, and folks can shop there. We also do a few um, larger uh, sheep and wool festivals. They're called It's It's a, you know, it's part farm show, part auction um, and part marketplace. And we, uh, our next show is going to be the Maryland sheep and wool festival coming up the first weekend of May in Frederick County, uh, Frederick County, Maryland. I think that's right. Um, and so that's our, that's our next big show. Um, but primarily yeah. online. Yeah. Where, where can, so, so where can people keep up with you and where can people find you if they want to go online and check out some of your products? Yep. Vermont natural sheepskins.com. Um, we, again, we have an online store. We also have, um, I have a page there on custom tanning and that walks you through all the preparatory steps, all that, all that customer education stuff that you need, um, how to get your stuff to me, whether you're local and you want to drop them off, or if you're not local and you want to ship skins to me, that's perfectly fine. Um, and a price guide and all of that. Um, I will say that at the time of this recording, my stock is a little low because it's January. We've just had the holiday market and that's my biggest season. Um, and I do get skins kind of seasonally. So if folks don't see what they're looking for right now. They could sign up for the newsletter and there's a link to that on the website and get first pick when I have the next batch of skins ready for retail sale. Awesome, awesome. Okay, vermontnaturalsheepskins.com. Sarah, thanks so much for being a part of Small Farm Nation and for everything that you're doing in Small Farm Nation. Oh, thank you very much, Tim. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Small Farm Nation. If your goal is to own a thriving farm business with loyal customers who gladly pay you the prices you deserve, check out smallfarmnationacademy.com. Small Farm Nation Academy includes hundreds of video and audio lessons, farm stock images, a community forum, business plan templates, and resources that will help you market and grow your farm business. Plus, you get a state-of-the-art Farm Press website free with your membership if you want one. And that includes hosting and email unlimited accounts. And get this. As a Small Farm Nation Academy member, you get personal one-to-one coaching from Tim free anytime you'd like. Small Farm Nation Academy is like having Tim as your own personal farm marketing and business mentor on call, but at a fraction of the cost of in-person consulting. And Small Farm Nation Academy has a full, no questions asked, seven-day money-back guarantee. So there's zero risk to you. The time to start marketing and growing your farm business is now. If you're serious about having a profitable, thriving farm business, join smallfarmnationacademy.com today. If you enjoyed this show, please share the love by leaving a five-star rating and review on iTunes, and by introducing Small Farm nation to anyone interested in farming or local food. Thanks for your support and until next time, thanks for being part of Small Farm Nation.